Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. Today we have Kyle Strobel. Kyle Strobel teaches at the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. Funny, we had Darian on last week. We have a back-to-back Talbot conversation. It's kind of unintentional, but here we are. Uh, Kyle is an Edwards scholar. He's done a ton of work on Jonathan Edwards. And uh, recently he wrote a book called The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, which really doesn't have much to do with Edwards. It's more about um, platform and celebrity in the church. And it was one of the most impactful books that I have read in a long time. And so I wanted to have this conversation with him just to see how he came up with this idea, how he got there. He has interviews with Eugene Peterson and Dallas Willard and J.I. Packer and all these great heroes of the faith who really in a lot of ways are some of the most influential people of the 20th century and yet lived lives that were basically, for all intents and purposes, very normal. They didn't go on the speaking circuits and all those kind of things the way a lot of celebrities have. And so I talked to Kyle about that, talked to him about how power has corrupted evangelicalism, how platform can be bad, how do we handle social media, all those kind of issues. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with him. This episode is presented by B&H Academic, bhacademic.com, and the Christian Standard Bible, csbible.com. Check out both of those sponsors. You'll see, as always, their links in the show notes. And now, our conversation with Kyle, but first, no big deal. I am here with Kyle Strobel. Kyle, I uh, found out something interesting about you uh, as we were chatting before this podcast started, that you are into witchcraft, which I didn't expect coming from you being <laughs> being a Jonathan Edwards scholar and whatnot, that you're also a, uh, a theologian of witchcraft. Can you explain that a little bit? <laughs> yes, yes. I, you know, this is a weird, weird story, actually. So I'm in, I'm interested in Harry Potter. That's the, um, that's the witchcraft bit. Um, you know, when I started after my PhD, I got a job teaching freshmen and I kept using what I thought were like relevant cultural things. And none of them had any clue what I was talking about. <laughs> I was horrified to find out that none of them had seen Indiana Jones. And, and so I asked them like, what, what do you watch? Like, what do you read? What are you into? And I came to discover that their entire lives had been lived against the backdrop of Harry Potter. Wow. And so I thought, you know, I should read these books just to get a sense if there's something usable in them. And I'm genuinely shocked when I read them, I was astonished to find out how just explicitly Christian they are. I mean, she's quoting scripture in those books yeah. and I'm shocked at how few Christians have seemed to notice that. <laughs> yeah. That's, a, that's amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm 33. And so I think I missed, I missed the Harry Potter boat just mm. a little bit. My younger brother's eight years younger sure. than me and it really hit him. I mean, oh, my, yeah. most of my influence or my interaction with Harry Potter was playing the PlayStation 2 game with my little brother. That's about the extent of it. So I actually have never read a page of a book, nor oh, have I yeah, ever wow. seen, I've seen probably no more than five minutes of a movie, uh, mainly because I, because I hate witchcraft, but also, yeah. uh, <laughs> but I, it's funny. I, you know what, what I've, I joke with my friends cause I have tons of friends who love Harry Potter. Maybe you can help yeah. me with this. They all tell me that you have to basically suffer through the first two or three books before yeah. you'll enjoy it. And I feel like that's a big time commitment for me to have to suffer through <laughs> three books to get into a series. Yeah. Well, you know, she wrote the books to be developmental. That's what's so fascinating about them. So you're supposed to read the first one at like, I don't know, nine or 10 or right, something. Right, right. And then every year, the problem now is like, if you start at eight or nine and you read the first book, 
they're going to try to read the whole series within like six months. Yeah. And suddenly they're reading stuff way beyond them. Binge read. Um, yeah. 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 Things they shouldn't probably be reading, you know, that she's, she's expecting you to have developed a little further before you really tackle kind of bigger issues. Yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that way. Um, okay. Well, I'm way too old for that then. So maybe I'll just, <laughs> I'll just keep that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, maybe that's the, uh, maybe that's the cultural appropriation I need to get into if I'm going to, uh, keep trying to disciple people younger than me. So, uh, so tell me it's more about you. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. yeah. Tell me more about yourself. Tell me about your, your bio, your family kind of things you're, you're interested in what you're up to. Yeah. Well, these days, you know, I live in Southern California, um, the perpetual summer. And, um, so it's cold today. It's actually only 71. Yeah. You're wearing, you're wearing sleeves. It looks like in the video. Yeah, so. my, um, this is, I realized that today I was like, wow, it's not going to be in the eighties. Um, I've got two little ones. So I've got an eight year old and a five year old. So I'm, you know, life is full, you know, it's, it's fun. I'm, um, as we were chatting before, you know, I'm, I'm at soccer games all the time. Yeah. <laughs> we have constant perpetual soccer. Um, my um, wife and I moved to a little town here. It kind of remind. It's actually one of the few places in Southern California that reminds me of where I'm from, from the Midwest, and which is really weird for out here actually. But it still has like a historic downtown, you know. Mm. And so that, that's been kind of fun. And um, I serve on the preaching team of, of my church out here, so I preach monthly, which is kind of part of how I understand the vocation of a theologian as to be a theologian of the church yeah, and, and not the academy. And um, I am a, an academic. I um, and professor of spiritual theology here. And so at, and this is at, at Talbot school of theology at Biola university. And so I, you know, my, my position's fun. I, I teach a whole variety of things from hermeneutics to history of Christian spirituality um, to Jonathan Edwards. I, I have a class coming up in the spring on Edwards theology. And so, so it's um, I have one of the weirdest positions in the Academy I've ever seen because it is a really wide ranging kind of a thing. And, and what's fun is I, the, some of the stuff I get to talk about are, are the things that I think we used to do, really well in in particularly the puritans mm -hmm. that we just stopped doing after the enlightenment and and talking about you know experimental the experiential theology as they used to call it piety sometimes it gets talked about as yeah. and, um what what does it mean to actually be formed into the image of christ and so i've I literally have a whole class that that's basically the question we're wrestling with and um and so it's that's these days really dominating almost all of my time yeah, is that, juggling all those things. That that sounds like you sound like the professor that has those classes where people come in like as a freshman or like first year of seminary and they find out that they weren't a Christian by the time they get out of your class. I remember at, at <laughs> totally. seminary yeah, we had no. a evangelism class where that was the case where people got saved like once every three years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the, we we regularly have students. I just did this lecture yesterday where they kind of realize what sin actually is. <laughs> and there's like, oh, Wow. <laughs> I'm going to have to rethink a little bit of this. <laughs> That's right. I had no idea how deep the problem really was. <laughs> oh, so let's, let's talk a little bit. I, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is, is uh, your book that you wrote uh, about a year and a half ago now is, is released. I guess you wrote it. It took you 25 years or so to write it, whatever it was. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but it was uh, The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. Uh, I read that book in 2017. I was already sort of teetering on the edge of quitting Twitter. Uh, for a lot of reasons, A, because I had worked really hard to build a platform and had built a decent amount of followers and uh, mm -hmm. it just sort of consumed my life. And I knew it was bad and I knew I needed to do something about it. Uh, I knew I needed to be more rooted in my local church, even though I was a pastor and an elder. I, I realized more and more, hey, I need to make sure that my 
my ministry is always first in my neighborhood and in my church and not out there. Mm. And so yeah. uh, your book was sort of the, and I wrote a blog post about this on my old blog on Patheos, that that, that was sort of my I'm quitting Twitter moment is after I read that book, it just mm. sort of pushed me over the edge. And so anyway, I, I suggested it to our church and, and our elders and staff read it together. And it's, it's been one of the most helpful books that we've read. And kind of the point of the book um, at the end of the day is you talk a lot about celebrity in the church, platform in the church, the way the church has used mm. its cultural influence, its authority, um, basically, you know, to, to have power over people, to have undue authority over people, to seek uh, the type of power that Jesus doesn't uh, seem to want us to try to have. So maybe yeah. if you could just unpack a little bit of the thesis of that book and just sort of uh, where you went with that and, you know, the, the writing of the yeah. book and the making of the book and all that. Yeah, well, yeah, that as you as you mentioned, it was a long journey for us. So my co-author and I, Jamin, who's, who's my closest friend in all the world, like we, um, this book's actually a sequel. So we we first wrote a book called Beloved Dust, um, and then we wanted we realized like where that book took us was really pointing directly to what power is. And you know, Jamin and I we went to seminary together. Um, I had already done a Bible degree in my undergraduate, and we were constantly confronted by Jesus, by various things, particularly Jesus, but, but particularly things like that Paul says as well, that seemed to undercut a lot of our motivations for what we were doing. You know, we, we both felt a genuine call in our life towards ministry, and yet we both knew a lot of that was wrapped up in quite a lot of grandiosity, um, quite a lot of a desire to be great and to dominate even, mm-hmm. to win, whatever that means in the church. And when we believed kind of that that where the Lord was leading us was down a path towards really wrestling with this and writing a book on it, we both looked at each other. We're like, we're, we can't write a book on this. <laughs> like, because we kind of knew like, sure, we could do what we, we could do what normally happens when you write a book. We could sit down, we could read all the right sources, we could do all the right biblical exegesis, and we can give you something. But the one of the reasons the book took so long is that we included in it our own journey to discover, like, what does Jesus actually say about the nature of power? And we went and interviewed people that we thought truly do and did, did do and did, I suppose, over decades, embody Jesus's way of power. Yeah. And so at the heart of the book, the real question for us really was simply, what does it mean to have power in our weakness? Because that that's clear in scripture, even yeah. though as we are looking around and saying, why is no one talking about this? Like, I still think this is one of the questions, if not the most important question the church is not asking. And so one of the reasons it took long was as we went to each interview, we discovered that they were pushing us to wrestle with things that we either hadn't considered or sometimes weren't interested in talking about. Right. That's the main thing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and the big one was when we interviewed Marva Dawn and she pushed us into wrestling through the powers and the principalities that to talk about power isn't simply to talk about kind of influence only or to talk about like kind of the way we go about trying to succeed. It actually is always a conversation also about spiritual warfare. And so for us, that the journey that we ended up taking was started with what is power and weakness, and then really progressed into a kind of a biblical theology, really, about what is the nature of Christian power? Yeah. And how do how are we called to stand against the powers in a certain kind of way? And as we look around today, even, and it, what's funny, you know, we took the, so it's been out, as you said, about a year and a half. 
So this has been a almost nine years ago we started this book. And if you think about the not last nine years in evangelicalism, even if you just think about the last three years in evangelicalism, it has been some of the most tumultuous all around issues of power. Yeah. And we have witnessed an astonishing failure by a generation that should be the ones we're looking to for wisdom in this regard, that what we've been handed is absolute failure to take seriously the Christian way of power. Or mm. the way I've come to think about it recently is that in evangelicalism, particularly the kind of evangelicalism I belong to, which is that kind of um, very Bible-centered very kind of doctrinally interested, like theologically minded. So kind of these are thoughtful kind of evangelical kind of circles. We've always been so afraid of the the heresy of Galatia that we just backed into the sin of Corinth without noticing it. Mm. And that, as I've looked around more and more, I'm like, this is the problem is that we're not talking about the sin of Corinth. And Paul was equally worried about that as he was about the heresy of Galatia. And so for us, it's how do we really consider what does it mean to have power and weakness? And as you pointed out, you know, for, for those who are in positions of authority, for those who have public profiles, that's a hard question. What, what has worried me, though, since the books come out is that some people have read it and say, they say things like, oh, yeah, this is a huge problem for those people. Mm-hmm. And what we've tried to argue is, no, 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 it is your problem. <laughs> this is a problem for all of us. And, you know, for Jamin and I, who both preach, we're both in leadership positions, I think we probably speak to the leader a little better. I mean, that's just probably a little more of who we are. Yeah. And maybe we failed a little bit to speak to just the average Christian. But we we worked hard to try to make it clear, this is for everyone. Like, you may have... You know, you may not be in full-time ministry. You may be volunteering to help out with the children. You may be like, this is just a much a problem that you have in your life, <laughs> whether it's through social media, whether it's through how you handle relationships, all the way down to how you consider if your life is quote unquote going well with God. Mm. Um, all of that is predicated first and foremost on a view of power that you assume. Yeah. And it's really interesting. You, you know, you mentioned, uh, one of the interviews, some of the interviews that you had were uh, John Perkins, J.I. Packer, Eugene Peterson, Dallas Willard. And you're talking about some of the most influential writers, pastors, thinkers yeah. of the of the last 50 years or so. I mean, just sure, amazing yeah. how influential they are. And it's interesting that every one of them probably could have pursued a lot more power and influence and authority yeah. than even they did. And I thought that totally. was really that was really powerful because we're looking around mm-hmm. as elders at our church at this, you know, 300 person church thinking, you know, we got to be careful with authority in the church. We got to be careful with overlording people. We got to be careful with mm-hmm. even how that's perceived to people who have been hurt by the church. And then I'm looking yeah. at, you know, Eugene Peterson or J.I. Packer going, how did, mm-hmm. I mean, we feel like totally. we already have enough temptation. So what were some of yeah. the things you learned uh, individually from some of those, some of those other guys yeah. that you, that you interviewed? Yeah, well, that was what's so astonishing. I mean, in many ways, it was funny that we could interview them. Right. Yeah, that's like, very you, true. You know, you the whole time Jamie and I are looking at each other going, like, how did we get like J.I. Packer's house phone number? <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> and why was that so easy? You know? And, you know, why was it? Why were these people meeting with us at all? Like we knew a handful of them, but I mean, we're cold calling some people. And you know, I remember Willard talking to Willard and talking to people that knew him really well and saying, you know, early on, I guess, 
he had a lot of people around him who were telling him, okay, Dallas, you got to make sure you're saying no to the small stuff. And you're only saying yes to the kind of the really influential stuff. Mm. And he'd kind of nod at them and then turn around and just do the opposite. <laughs> like evidently you could get Dallas Willard to like come to your house and speak to your small group. <laughs> and he would say yes. And, and there was no, there was a sense where there was nothing like smallness in that regard had nothing to do with impact or power because they thought in kingdom terms. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things Willard taught me years ago was that if we take the the kind of widow with her might seriously, that she actually did put more money in wow. than the Pharisees who were dumping, you know, 10 times the amount of money. Yeah. That in a real sense, Jesus was saying, no, her money matters more. It actually will do more in the kingdom. And he actually meant and it. it. And he actually meant it. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. We, you know, yeah. And I have this fear that that, that I kind of realized when I started studying the Bible academically is that, and I think a lot of us probably that do this realize this, but maybe we don't verbalize it, that, that every Christian has this folder that we have in our hearts called the crazy things Jesus says folder. <laughs> and we just kind of put stuff in there. Like, you know, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. Like, yeah, Jesus, that's right. And we kind of shove that in there. Cause it's like, I don't know what that means. You know, the first will be last and the last will be first. It's like, who actually believes that's true? <laughs> Like maybe he was right. Like what if he was actually serious that yeah. the last are first and the first, you know, and, and that's what really drove us in this book. Like what, let's take Jesus seriously on this kind of thing. And, and, you know, Eugene Peterson was fascinating because here's a guy who he left his church because when he went to the presbytery and he said, I can no longer pastor these people. There's too many of them. We need to church plant. They said, no. So he said, okay, then I retire. Wow. And then he went, did some academic work, but then he kind of goes back to his ho small hometown, middle of nowhere, Montana. And I mean, he doesn't, you know, he's being invited to conferences left and right. He by and large says, no, you two ask him to go on tour with him. They say, he says, first, who's you two? And second, no. <laughs> yeah. His, his, whole, and, his friendship with Bono is kind of infamous, but he wasn't yeah, uh, yeah. originally like a big U2 fan in the eighties or anything. Totally. He wasn't rocking he out at no U2 concerts. who they were. And then eventually, yeah, it took them going to his home, right? They had to come to Montana to see with him. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of these folks that were true, it's not, these guys are staying in their homes. They're hanging out in small towns. He just becomes a regular attender of the local church. And he just blesses the people around him. And what Eugene told us, I thought was really interesting. He said, you know, when I left, you know, you could tell it was really hard for him to leave like pastoral ministry, like that had a, such a huge part of his life. And he said, you know, I thought when I was leaving pastoral ministry, I was leaving being a pastor. And then he said, what the Lord showed me is that he he's bringing me a different sort of congregation. And so here's a guy hidden out basically in Montana. And he said, every about two weeks or so people fly out just to sit with him. And we were some of those people. Yeah. There's like a whole, evidently there's a whole bread and, bread and breakfast that like exists for Eugene. <laughs> I <laughs> believe were, that after reading the book. Like, I got totally believe totally, that. And they were unbelievers too. They'd always say, oh, you here to see Eugene? And we get into conversations with these folks. Like, what are they thinking? You know, <laughs> here's this elderly man living in this cabin over here. And every couple of weeks, people are flying out just to talk with him. And we had that, we had that experience with J.I. Packer that way where we're, he, he took us to his, like one of his favorite coffee shops. And we're in, we, you know, we have microphones out, we, we, we're recording him and all these older people, it was filled with a lot of older people. They just stop and stare at us. And you, you got a sense in their hearts, like, like that these people were watching two young men listening to every word of this older man going right. like, what, 
why are they interested in this person? Not, like, know, not knowing, yeah, whatnot, not knowing right? he's one of the most influential theologians in the world. Totally. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, and think of outside the church, an old man is just an old man. There, yeah. there is no value. Like this person has nothing to offer the world. We tend, we tend to think, um, as James Houston said to us, I'm retired. I'm no longer a human. <laughs> wow. You know, and it's, it's that impulse we have as a culture yeah. that, that if you cannot do anymore the same way that somehow you're not meaningful, you're not truly human. And unfortunately, the church has taken that on, which is why most of these people aren't invited to conferences anymore. But it's the youngest, it's the biggest church, it's the most exciting, it's the most fashionable, whatever it is. And we discovered that these folks have an immense power to them. Because remember, some people forget this when they read the book that the, the goal is never weakness. The goal is power, but it's power that is discovered in weakness. And what we discovered in these, in these people were this, this kind of depth of power that they had cultivated through a life with Jesus that was ultimately cultivated in hiddenness, in small things, in faithfulness, mm. and in just kind of giving themselves to what they believe the Lord had called them to. And that struck us, I mean, pretty profoundly. Yeah, so um, people might recognize your last name as well if they don't know you um, otherwise. So you're the son of a celebrity Christian, right? Yeah. Of Lee Strobel, Case for Christ, mm-hmm. and every other Case for Case for Everything <laughs> uh, <laughs> books. And um, so, uh, if you don't mind, just kind of what sure. was it like? How old were you when he kind of when that really all hit? Um, how did that sort of impact you? Uh, how did you see him handle that? What was that like being in the home of somebody sort of in that realm uh, of celebrity in the Christian world? Yeah, you know, it, it it didn't really hit until later for me. Um, so I think the case for Christ probably came out when I was in junior high. Mm-hmm. But I grew up at Willow Creek. And so growing up at a church like that, I mean, there was, it's, a, it's just so big that I was known in a way that most people weren't. Yeah. Like, I, like every pastor's kid has this experience, right, where you're kind of recognized, you're kind of, like even if a church of 200, like there's, you're kind of given this status, that's weird. It's all, it's awkward. And in a mega church is even weirder because right. now you have this whole city that kind of knows you. And for me, you know, I think one of the major differences, I know a lot of these folks, like, like we don't have a club or anything, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I've, I've gotten to know a lot of folks who grew up as kind of famous people's kids. Yeah. And I think as I've talked with them, one of the things I've realized that how different my experience was is one, it was later, but two, my dad never had a thing. Like he never had an organization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it, even at will, like I wasn't the pastor's kid, right? I was, I was one of the many pastor's kids who was, it's not, it wasn't his church, you know, you know, as sometimes you hear people talk about people's church based on the head pastor, it was yeah. their church. Yeah. That was never true of my dad. He never had a ministry organization. Um, so I have friends who, who grew up that way where there's their father's running this whole organization and almost like a Billy Graham and Franklin Graham kind of a scenario. Yeah. And so in many ways, it, I don't think I was nearly as affected by it as a lot of people who grew up with those kinds of realities. And I think those just affect people more. Um, but it was weird. You know, I mean, I remember as a kid going to Florida on vacation with my family and my dad and I went to a go-kart track and he was recognized, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is crazy. I mean, it was yeah. just one of those things like, wow, that's really weird. And, um, you know, I, it was probably not until I was in college where he really became really well known. And suddenly people would hear my name and say, wait, are you 
related to you know and yeah. that those sorts of things happen which again is pretty late so that, that that tends to be less affecting you know what's been hard and and I, it's been good for me to see my dad struggle with it has been watching him because in some sense, celebrity as such isn't necessarily bad. Like Peter was a celebrity. Jesus was a celebrity. Mm-hmm. Like if by celebrity, we mean people who are recognized publicly, I, there's something that isn't necessarily wrong about that. The question is, what do you do with that? Yeah. And one of the things that has come out of the book, actually, I, I, we were, I've actually been pleasantly surprised because I expected to, that Jamin and I were going to get brutally attacked for writing this book. Like I fully expected we're going to get butchered over this thing. And that hasn't happened, thankfully. <laughs> Yet. Um, although that, that actually worries me a bit. It yeah. worries me that people aren't really listening, hmm. that they're reading and saying, yeah, that sounds great. And then moving on to something else. Um, I'm not sure people have really heard what we've said, but one of the things that the only, one of the only negative things that has been said about us is like, Oh, you know, these guys, you know, rail against gurus and then they go interview a bunch of them. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you don't, you don't know the difference between a, an elder and a guru. <laughs> <laughs> that's disconcerting. And that's one of the things we've discovered is people in evangelicalism genuinely don't. And I think part of it is because we have, as Sky Jathani talks about the evangelical industrial complex, yep. like we have this engine that has created a celebrity culture and that's actually more dangerous so if you do become known in it, you're wrestling through, okay, I have a lot of these opportunities now to share the gospel, to, to preach, to proclaim my the message I think the Lord's called me to proclaim. Like all these are good things. But then there's like, but what do I do with this negative side of it? Like how people treat me, mm-hmm. how I'm seen, how like we really have to be careful with h- how I make decisions in light of that. You know, what am I seeking to cultivate it? And to your point, like, am I cultivating a platform? Um, I think it's interesting in the last, I don't know, five, six years now, we've actually started seeing pastors forced to step down because the elders are saying this person's more interested in cultivating a platform than they are shepherding this people. Yeah. And, you know, praise God for those elders. My guess is very few elder boards are either willing to do that or have the wisdom to notice that. Yeah. The bigger problem might um, be that they don't even notice. Yeah. That is the bigger problem, I think, or that they actually think that is how you shepherd up. Yeah. That's why they hire them. That's why they like having them totally. because that's who they are. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, one of the things I've seen, you know, Jamin and I have gone around now talking about this book and I've, and this is, you know, it's, it's, it's scary to me because this is, for us, this has been the weightiest thing we've ever taken on in particular because we do think, it is the most important question not being talked about because for us, the question isn't simply, I think for most people, and this would be true of us 10 years ago, the question is like, okay, there's a way that's better than other ways, right? So we shouldn't do these things. We shouldn't cultivate celebrity. We shouldn't become a guru. We shouldn't cultivate plant. Like those are not great, but, and there's a better way to do things and that's better, but you know, and so we just kind of said, yeah, there's things that we shouldn't be up to. And we just kind of left it there. Whereas what, what our studies really led us to is that, no, 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 it's not simply that these things aren't, aren't, aren't the best way to do it. These things are demonic. Yeah. Like these things are a part of a system of power that is antithetical to the cross. And that's what we really felt the weight of. But as we've gone around and spoken, I mean, I've spoken on this at churches and I get a call six months later said, after your talk, our pastor's no longer with us. Hmm the elders heard and recognized 
what kind of power was being cultivated in this church. And that's a weighty sort of thing to hear. But I'm also hearing like you came in, you raised the issue and the elders basically decided, no, they want a celebrity. Yeah. Yeah. Like, thanks for no thanks. That's right. And so that's been really interesting to see and to see how many churches who have just decided no, no, no. We, we want worldly power here. And I, to be honest, I think one of the problems that we're going to face over the next, well, for the foreseeable future, really, is that Christians more and more are going to feel like the world is closing in around them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the question is, what are you going to turn to? Are you going to turn to faith or are you going to turn to sight? And that sight will be worldliness. It will be a cultivation of a worldly power that you think will work. And it will be antithetical to the gospel at some point, and it will slowly warp the soul of the church. I mean, there's a church I heard recently, a church that I know about, who is suing a former member for speaking against them. Yeah. And this is a church that's notorious for worldly power. And the way the elders are trying to justify it, I mean, obviously, the Bible has some things about suing other Christians in court to say, is they write that off as a different sort of lawsuit. And this is just evil, right? There's no other question about like, this is just evil. And I can't fathom how the people of that church aren't rising up (laughs) against their pastor and elders, throwing them out. Yeah. But that's where we're at. I mean, this is a Bible church, a church that's supposed to be a church about the Bible, and they are ultimately rejecting scripture entirely and giving themselves to worldliness. And it's this kind of thing that is unfortunately becoming a new norm. You know, one of the things that was hard about writing this book is people hear you're writing a book on power and the stories come out of the woodwork. And we share some gnarly stories in the book, but we share none of the really hard ones. Yeah, the, there were yeah, so many a lot stories. Worse, sure. Yeah. Oh, we couldn't believe. I mean, some of the stories we heard, we couldn't even use because no one would believe them. <laughs> like they're so absurd. No one would believe that could possibly happen in the church. And evidently, it's it's not only is it becoming more and more normal, I find it's rare to talk to a Christian who hasn't kind of been spiritually abused at the hand of a church that's given itself to worldliness. Yeah, and I think there's probably there's probably a case in which a sense in which a lot of Christians were discipled and raised in a culture in which they like you said they're not even thinking about it. It's not even mm-hmm. it's not even weird to them. I mean, from everything totally. from everything from po- political uh, issues to uh, having a celebrity pastor to having the biggest church in town mm-hmm. to you know I mean one of the things that that sort of grinds my gears right now that gets me fired up that I have to be careful not to. Um, let affect my uh, my life too much is is the sort of uh, celebrity pastor circuit to the point to where the guy mm-hmm. is always preaching at somebody else's church every Sunday totally. or he's at a conference every week and I'm like okay at, at what point are you you know I, w- I want to leave some freedom for hey go encourage this other church sure. hey go speak totally. but at what point is if you're preaching ten times a year at your church or twenty times a year at your church yeah. are you pastoring anymore or, or maybe you should step back and not have a lead role and focus more on you I don't know what the totally. solution is but that kind of thing uh, is something that I just I'm just I just wonder I, I'm assuming I want to assume the best and say that they've worked through some of those issues with themselves and with their elders mm-hmm. or whatever and there's another side of me that's just like I just objectively can't find the yeah. good in it you know. 
Totally. Yeah, totally. And this is, I mean, at the end of the day, it comes down and this for every Christian, the question has to be, what do I believe is true power? Yeah. What do I believe will make me a powerful person? That's not a bad question to ask. The question is, how do we ask it in a kingdom way rather than yeah. a worldly way? What kind of power? What's your definition of power? Totally. And where does it come from? How is it wielded? And yeah. all these kind of things. When the cross becomes power, now that's a different sort of thing. Right? Yeah, yeah. And now we have to think through, what does that mean? But for most of us, I think, and particularly when you get to the leadership in the church, to the kind of conference circuit, like the problem I think we have is the money pastors think that's where power is. Yeah. And they look at their congregation and they think about going to a hospital visit, praying with a person who's dying, and they don't think that's powerful. Yeah. And that's the problem. Even more powerful, not just powerful, that's but right. even more powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you, so you're, you know, you're, you're a professor, you're dealing yeah. with young, you know, young people all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are you kind of implementing this in the way that you teach and the way that you disciple? Yeah. What are you kind of seeing in this, in this next generation of seminarians and, and Bible students, or even just young people in the university? Uh, what are some of the things you're seeing there? And what are you trying to do to sort of work that in to how you teach and how you disciple? Because I'm assuming this is a big part of what you do on a day-to-day basis yeah. there. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, and so it, we, Talbot is a very unusual seminary for a variety of reasons. It, it is wildly diverse, like I am genuinely shocked how diverse we are as a, as a, in our student body. And one of the things I've realized is how power wields its head in different ways in different ethnic circles, different church ministry backgrounds, different callings, all these kinds of things. So that's been really interesting. But one of the other things that makes us unusual is that we require every student to do a year and a half of what we call spiritual theology and part of that, and I teach, that's my main teaching load. And so in that class, you know, they, they follow this cohort group through every week, they have to be spending an hour in prayer wrestling through the topics of this class. Mm. And so that's, that's one, that's one of the main assignments. And so we're talking about these sorts of questions, you know, and one of the big questions is why are you here? Like, are you here to learn things, to tell people they're wrong, to be better than others? Are you here? And like, maybe you know, that's why I was here. Yeah, how many of them are honest? Sure. That's the question. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, in prayer, it becomes hard, right? Yeah. It's one thing to just ask them it. Now say, you have to ask the Lord why you're here. Yeah. You have to sit and pray and say, Lord, why am I actually in seminary? And I tell them, look, it's going to be a mixed bag. <laughs> like, I had a genuine calling and it was full of all sorts of pride and grandiosity and arrogance. I wanted to be right about everything. There's all sorts of things going on. Fair enough. I don't, don't be naive to assume that's not going to be there. Sure. And, and so they spend a year and a half doing this and, you know, it's, and they also spend a part of the year because they're a part of the group. They then the next week are sharing those things with others. And so it actually becomes very difficult not to be honest about them Yeah, because these groups very quickly can tell when you're not. And one of the things that's nice about that is you begin to realize one that my temptations are, aren't unusual actually. <laughs> <laughs> that we're we're all tempted in relatively similar sorts of yeah, ways, right. um, and that I need to be able to speak meaningfully about how I'm tempted in this. There are some, you know, it's been interesting to see kind of what are the students that have the hardest time hearing it. Um, we get a certain amount of students that are leaning, pretty influenced by fundamentalists, preachers. 
not a lot of these students, but we have still get a handful. And I feel like for these students who I, and I try to make a differentiation between evangelicalism and fundamentalism Yeah. and fundamentalism as I see it is a kind of rationalism that kind of doesn't believe in total depravity. They, they still think that there's aspects of the person that are unfallen in particular, the rationality. And so the, and the conscience usually. And so th- the way this gets wielded is I actually can just kind of master scripture without having to attend to the depths of my soul before yeah, God. Yeah. And those students I find are the students that struggle the most because they're trying to kind of live a Christian life in idea alone. And these are the groups that are happy to focus solely on the the heresy of Galatia and never bother really wrestling through the sin of Corinth. And so I'm constantly leading them into the Corinthians and saying, oh, it's interesting that there's certain methods of preaching that actually undermine the power of the cross. What do you think that means? Mm. How How do we think about that? Is it only preaching that this can happen with? Probably not, right? You know, how do we, and so, we spend a lot of time really wrestling through these things in the second class of that sequence, they end up reading the way of the dragon or the way of the lamb. And so that forces them into it. And that's, you know, that's where I I had one class very early on tell me, you know, this is, this is a huge problem for those people out there. And that's what I really began worrying about. Wow. You don't, you still think powers, like they're still thinking of power solely in worldly categories so that power is a thing for people who have it already, as if p- power doesn't fund how we praise God, how we read our Bibles, right. how we study, right? And and so th- I've more and more turned there trying to show them, look, everything you do is funded by your view of power. And then really try to raise some questions about what are what is this leading us into? And ultimately, you know, for me, I, I think one of the things that we particularly in like people who are in seminary, people who are going into positions of authority and leadership. I'm not sure we've really wrestled with the implications of what it, of what it means that humility is one of the chief Christian virtues. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we more and more or less kind of just accept that acting humble is probably the same thing as (laughs) being humble, you know, like, and so I think a lot of people learn like, oh, as a pastor, I'm supposed to say these sorts of things, not these sorts of things. I don't yeah. want to come across as, you know, instead of actually being a humble person. <laughs> and so when they're confronted with that and they begin to realize that sin isn't simply something I do, it, it gets, it penetrates to the depths of my desires that, you know, when Jesus is pierced, he bled forgiveness. And when I, when I'm pierced, I bleed revenge. And that's mm. a problem. Yeah. Right. That that when I'm pierced, humility doesn't come out of my soul. And that's more of what we're wrestling to the depths of with. And for me, it's like, if you're going to be at seminary and all you do is kind of learn that you're right and that other people's are wrong, like you've just failed miserably to use that time well. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, I'm, and I'm glad you're there doing that. I went to uh, Criswell College in Dallas, which is really more of an undergrad Bible college, but they have a, mm. uh, the master's program I was in was sort of a PhD prep. Um, a lot mm. of classes were PhD prep. So there was a lot of reading everybody and everything, presenting papers, lots of discussion type stuff. And I was so grateful to have a couple of faculty members who from the get-go 
We're just like, you're not the only person that's ever thought about God. You're not the only person that's ever thought about <laughs> theology. You're not the only yeah. person who's right about everything and forcing you to read. I remember re- uh, writing a paper on uh, the, homart- the homartiology of Paul, you know, real, real hard hitting mm-hmm. stuff that nobody's ever thought about <laughs> my first year of seminary. <laughs> and, uh, and I had a professor, I, I had Tom Schreiner and Carl Bart agreeing with me on justification. And, um, <laughs> which, you know, they're not, they're not opposites, but they're definitely not exactly totally. the same. Right. And he yeah. said, uh, he just put a little quote to the next, uh, the side of it and a little note to the side of it. And he said, uh, you know, it's that classic meme, you're using this word, but I don't think it means what you think it means, that whole thing. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, uh, and I, and it was just like that kind of wake up call of, oh yeah, I'm not really reading other people charitably. I'm not thinking through these issues. Mm. And that was huge for me, uh, even in just, uh, in just how you engage other people, because that, that really filtered yeah. down into from, me being fair to black liberationists and Karl Barth and Schleiermacher and everybody in between, being fair to their ideas, whether I agree or not, yeah. really trickled down into, I mean, it, it, the professor was trying to trickle it down into your life to where you actually can love your neighbor yeah. who disagrees with you. And I felt totally. like that was something I really needed. So I'm thankful you're doing that there. Mm, yeah, thanks. No, that no, that is a huge part of what it means to be a good thinker in the church. And I think we have yeah, that's a part we really haven't considered well, I think. We today, other, other, yeah, we other everybody else, everybody that's else right. on Twitter, social media, whatever. And I, mm-hmm. you know, when I was on, when I, when I decided to, um, to quit Twitter, particularly, I took a whole year off social media completely and then got back on Facebook, sort of, uh, Facebook is one, you know, people make fun of Facebook the most, but that's the one that I feel like I can police the most as far as I can, totally. I can interact with, and, and I try to interact with people who disagree with me, but I can interact mm. with family and friends and church members and colleagues and not yeah. get sideswiped by some troll, you know, who, yeah, who's totally. just there to yeah. like make my life miserable. And it's also, mm. it's, it's hard to build a platform on Facebook like it is on Twitter. It's a lot easier because it's just out there. You yeah. can, like my, my account's private. Totally. And so, um, mm. you know, when I got back on yeah. Facebook, that was the way that I tried to, to help myself a little bit. But when I, when I got off social media, it was really amazing. I mean, it was it was every day probably for months. I don't, I'm not exaggerating to say every day for months. I was getting emails, text messages, phone calls from pastor friends, from other writer friends, from other people who followed me on Twitter and I was, who I'd met on social media, who all to a T, I had nobody tell me, like you said, nobody told me, this is a bad idea. I can't believe you're doing this. Now, there was a couple of people yeah. who said, hey, I think you're exaggerating. You know, social media can be used for good, whatever. Um, sure. Which I believe that it can in some sense, um, even though I think sure. it's kind of flawed fundamentally, but I think it can can be used yeah. that way. But, you know, everybody tended to agree with me and and probably 75% of them said, I'm really considering doing it too. And about 5% of them did. Now, I don't, I'm not yeah. making a value judgment on them as people, but it was sort of that thing where it was, there's the agreement there. There's definitely, this is not controversial mm-hmm. to say that it's a problem, that celebrity is a problem, yeah, that power totally. is a problem. The question is, you know, what do you do with it and how do you handle it and how many excuses are you making for keeping yourself in that, you know, in that world? So, so yeah. what are, what are some just, you know, basic advice you have for pastors, professors, writers, seminarians who, who might be listening? Uh, you know, you're, you're writing books, you're on social media, you are doing this podcast. I'm doing this podcast. It's not like we're saying you should go be a monk and, you know, never yeah. talk to anybody ever again. So how would you recommend people sort of think through this? What are some pitfalls you think people fall into as far as kind of the common excuses that aren't very good excuses? Mm-hmm. And, and how can you do it yeah. well in this world that we that we live in? Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, for me, and this this is something that struck Jamin and I, you know, when, and, you know, when I remember when I wrote my first book, the being tossed into the world of Christian writing is very di- kind of, <laughs> it, it creates a quite a lot of disequilibrium in your life. Like it's yeah. like, what, where's up, where's down. And 
I've always felt that I've been called to write, but not to market. Hmm. But then I remember my first book went out of print rather quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Then you realize, wait a second. (laughs) Well, I had a friend tell me, he's like, oh, I didn't even know you wrote a book. And I was like, okay, there's got to be a balance here. (laughs) And for me, like when Jamie and I wrote this book, we decided like, we don't want to market the book. We want to market the question. Yeah. Because for us, and I, this is the first book I've written. I could genuinely say this about like, at the end of the day, about the way of the dragon, the way of the lamb, I actually don't care if you agree. I just want you to talk about the question. That's good. Because for me, and that, that changes things a little bit when you think that way. Cause it's every other book I've written. Cause I think I'm right about this. And I think you want, I want you to agree with me <laughs> right. now. I think I'm right about the way of the dragon, the way of the lamb as well. But part of us just being like, this book doesn't feel like it was ours even it's a book we're still grappling with. Yeah. And in, in part, because we don't think the church is even talking about these things, we want to just invite people to a new kind of conversation. And so for me, like, you know, I just got an invite. This is a, this to use a personal example. I get this letter in the mail, which is weird enough. Um, give an invitation by letter. I felt like <laughs> was it, it delivered was, by a bird? queen was calling me. Yeah, I was like, here, here, you know, I was like, whoa. Um, and it was to this thing. And, and immediately I thought, I need to be at this thing. This is everything. This is impressive. It is, you know, it has status written all over it. You know, it was Ivy League-ish kind of thing. Um, And I remember looking at it going, why do, one, I wanted to wrestle with, why do I want it? Because it's not bad. It wouldn't be bad for me to go. But I had to really step back and think, what am I giving myself to? does this even show up on the list of things that I want to be about Yeah, yeah. that I really feel like I'm called to at the end of the day, I had to turn it down. And I was like, I can't like, I got little kids. Um, you know, what matters to me is that I am first their father well before I am an academic, yeah. certainly well before I am, you know, someone with a, so like a, a, a kind of public presence. And so I'm always trying to kind of approach the things that are presented to me with, you know, is this something that I should be giving myself to in light of my calling? You know, one of the things we we ask our students to pray about very early in our classes, usually often in, in these spiritual formation classes, is um, what kind of grades should you get in this class? Like most of you shouldn't get A's, like based on your life. Like if you have little kids and a job, mm-hmm. you shouldn't be getting an A mm-hmm. in these classes. And if you are, you have to really wrestle with why, like, what are you, what are you deciding not to attend to in your life? Yeah. I kind of, I kind of made the, uh, I kind of made the, uh, the, I told my wife, I said, I, I feel like I just made the decision that my dissertation is probably not going to be as good as it could have been, or I'm going to be a terrible husband totally. and father. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You're, you're constantly having to make these, these judgments based on, you know, what the Lord has called you to. And even, you know, when Jamin and I decided we want to spend years writing this book before we propose it, before we, you know, we could have pounded out the book in six months, which is how a lot of books are written. But if we did, it wouldn't have been anything like it was like, you know, for us, it was like, how do we, how do we start with what are we called to? And then what, what is the best way to give myself to this faithfully? And, you know, for that, that's for everyone, that's going to look a little different. And that's why I think there's going to be no kind of, you know, secret, <laughs> you know, formula that we'll just do this and you'll yeah, be okay. Of kind of, kind of yeah. thing. But it's, it really, for me, is the question and, and a kind of how do we wrestle with the question? And then how do we wrestle with the question in community? Like, 
we need to be able to talk about these things with others who know our temptations from the inside. And, you know, for me, you know, Jamin has always been, you know, we've, we've, we've done this together. And so we can always approach one another and say, why are you saying yes to this? Or why do you think this would be a good idea? Or, or often more often than not, it's usually, I think I want to do this. What do you think? Like, yeah. is this something I should be giving myself to? And having people who can really kind of mirror back to us. Yeah, this isn't a bad thing, but should you be doing this now? Mm-hmm. You know, like, is it, and I, it, I'm still amazed at how many things I take for granted in this regard that I just think, Oh, it's obvious. I'll say yes to this. And the only reason it's obvious is because it's it's kind of strategic in worldly terms. Yeah, yeah. Well, your instinct kind of goes that way. Totally. And so it's, you know, this is where we have to, you know, and this is where you look at someone like Paul and, of course, Jesus's life. Like, there's nothing strategic about what they're doing, in terms of like, like Paul wants to go evangelize to Spain, and God's response to him is to throw him in prison in Rome. <laughs> it's like that. Why? Like that. <laughs> Like, just on, God, no that's, that's not very strategic, God. Like that's you're, you're, yeah, you're not yeah. really about the mission, are you? <laughs> totally. Let let Paul loose, you know, and and then you look around at churches who are targeting celebrities, and you're going, yeah, like that's just worldliness. Yeah, like that is antithetical to the gospel. And yet, by and large, most people look at that and say, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, one thing that was helpful for me too that. I was thankful just the other elders at our church were really kind of good about, hey, we're going to be accountability for you on these things, whatever mm-hmm. it is. And when I kind of got off social media, I talked to them about it. And um, I right about that time, I had a two-book deal contract, which mm-hmm. people were saying, hey, nobody, nobody gets a two-book deal. Most people get a one-book deal if they're lucky or they're fighting for it. And everything in me wanted to say, yes, I mean, this is, you know, I've been praying about this and the Lord's giving this to me and all that. And, you know, sat down with our elders and, and one of them was just like, hey, you know, if you do this, where do you think this is going to lead? Like, why do you want to do this? If you write these two books in the next two years, how's it going to affect how you lead your community group? How's it going to affect how you pastor people here? How's it going to affect your job? How's it going to affect your family? You know, all these other things that you're called to before you're called to this thing. Yeah. And mm, I ended up yeah. and he ended up saying, look, it's not sinful for you to do it necessarily, but you need to mm. think through the extensive you know, things that you're going to have to give up or hurt or, um, yeah. you know, not do well at end. And is that worth it? And ultimately it wasn't worth it. And I think it probably would have been sinful to have taken that on given what it would have taken, uh, if I had done it. And so one of the things that I've tried to do, uh, one thing is with, with our elders is if I have any writing opportunity or anything like that, I will send it to them. So when I first became an elder at our church, mm. I sent it to our elders. I said, here's kind of the pipeline. I've got these couple of contracts coming in the next six years, five or six years. Here's a couple of articles I have to do. I want you guys to hold me accountable. If you think I'm taking on too much, you guys can tell me that kind of idea. And they've been really helpful for yeah. that. One of our elders is, uh, he leads our short-term studies at uh, Lifeway. Uh, so he handles oh, yeah. pretty much all those. And so he he said uh, one day he told me about three months after that, he said, hey, we had this project that came up and I thought, man, Brandon would be perfect to write that. He said, but I just told him, no, like Brandon's not going to write it. And I was really mad at him at first. I'm like, why didn't you ask me if I was supposed to do that? And he said, you wanted me to hold you accountable. And I think it would be a bad idea. So I told them no for you. And I was so mad at him right off the bat. And, you know, after a little bit of, you know, five or 10 minutes of kind of thinking about it, I thought that's exactly what I asked him to do, to hold me accountable. And it would have been a terrible thing for me to do. And I probably would have said yes. And yet it would have hurt my family. So part of it is, uh, I think, at least for me, 
is just building in guardrails, even that aren't necessary. I mean, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have destroyed my life to have written that study, but was it good for me to even have that discipline of saying no or somebody else saying no for me? That was a way of kind of letting go of power, the power that I really wanted and saying, I'm going to give this to somebody else. So I think that's, I mean, that has been really helpful for me. I think um, you're kind of echoing the same thing. So, Yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, it seems like it's a lot more about your posture and your understanding more than it is about what opportunities you are or are not saying yes to. Why are you doing it? What's your motivation? Because I w- otherwise, I think we get into the temptation of saying anybody who's famous or who writes a book is just a power hungry, you know, want to totally. be celebrity. Yeah, right? that's the problem. Yeah, yeah. I think we, yeah. And I, if we're not careful, we'll default to that. I think the the church totally. will. And yeah. I th- even in your book, I mean, I your book is is very helpful and not it, you clearly are not trying to say that in your book, which I think is really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where like, we had a lot of people who along the way, you know, just chatting to people, telling what we're doing, you know, immediately they're like, oh yeah, the mega churches, you know, and you're going, well, yeah, the mega churches are an easy target on some of this stuff just because they're big, but bigness does not matter for power. Right. You could be it. And as Jamin said, he's like, when I was standing in front of 40 high school students, I was embracing worldly power. So Jamin and I recently wrote something after all this stuff happened recently at Willow Creek. Um, the religious news services had, had us write um, something for rms.com. And, you know, the, the approach we took, you know, seeing the kind of what has happened with Bill Hybels and everything was, what do you do when you hear this news? Mm. And our, our response was, you have to turn into your soul and recognize your own temptations. Yeah. And I saw the day after that stuff came out about Hybels, I saw a pastor post this thing that basically said, I always knew that place was sleazy. Basically I'm better. Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, this is the problem. Yep. And, you know, we need to really wrestle through, particularly with power because there's a reason why these, this works, right? There's a reason why you can cultivate celebrity and make it quote unquote work for you because for whatever reason, people still go hear people at conferences who are 22 with a church of 20,000. Mm-hmm. For the life of me, I can't fathom why anyone would care what that person says. <laughs> like I can't begin to fathom after reading the Bible mm-hmm. why anyone would think this is a person with wisdom. And yet we, you know, because they're selling these things out and have best-selling books, like there's a reason this, this industrial complex works is this is what people want. And so I think in general, like the church, like we need to start cultivating a totally different question. We need to start cultivating different opportunities to attend to people that have actual wisdom Mm -hmm. and rethink what Christian power actually looks like so that we actually have models for what it means to embrace these things. Yeah. Isn't it interesting that somebody like Tim Keller, you know, didn't write his first book till he was, I can't remember what it was, 45 or 50 or something like that. I can't remember what it was, but yeah. And I mean, I, I've, I'm always impressed when I, every now and again, we'll try to do a conference and I'll contact someone, a pastor, and they'll say, you know, they're trying not to kind of do anything outside their church right now. And I'm like, great. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Good beats for them. The, I'm beats glad. the alternative. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, and so I, it's, you know, I, I'm at least encouraged that it seems like more and more people are starting to ask these sorts of questions. But I'm still astonished. Like I, I, I genuinely wonder what else has to happen. I mean, even if you just took the last year in evangelicalism yeah, and no seen kidding. what has gone on, what else has to happen before we have this conversation? Yeah. Um, I don't know what it's going to be. I mean, it, it, you know, <laughs> it does seem like, uh, you know, I was talking to somebody a little while back about 
um, not to get into politics too much, but sort of the idea of if you're looking at politics and the culture, and, and you can kind of see the writing on the wall in some sense that, mm. that Christians are definitely grasping for political power as much as possible. Totally. Um, and it's and they feel like it's slipping away, and in some ways it probably is and will continue to. And at some point, um, he basically said, look, you're going to have to pick a side. At some point as a Christian, you're going to have to say, I'm yeah. either going to go all in with Rome here, and I'm going to have to mm. just try to get all the power I can get, get all the celebrity totally. I can get, or you're going to have to say, maybe this isn't the way. And he said, eventually, we don't have to make that decision fully yet. But he said, I think eventually we're going to have to make that decision. And he said, I don't think evangelicals are ready to make that decision yeah. yet. No, I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. I think I think there's a split on the horizon, that, that and it, it is going to be fundamentally about power. Yeah. And evangelicalism is going to be divided in half about what does it mean to embrace power kingdomly. Half will go the way of the culture and politics. Um, not that you could ever be kind of Christian in an unpolitical kind sure. of way, but they're going to give themselves to the political as the answer that we need political power to be the church. And the other half is going to try to reimagine you know, what it actually means to, to follow in Jesus's way of power. And I, I mean, I, I'm not sure what that's going to look like, but I, I, I imagine it's going to be ugly. Yeah, it's definitely, it, there's no doubt it's going to be ugly and it's going to be very public. I'm sure it already is. I mean, yeah, I wonder if yeah, these totally. are, it's not like we're necessarily unique in 2018. You know, the church has struggled with this off and on probably for mm -hmm. its entire history. You can read church history and see uh, totally. Constantine and other areas where this has mm -hmm. clearly become an issue. Uh, but it, it, it will, I think it's cycling itself back, uh, back to us a little bit, not to be, yeah. not to be doomsday about it, but I think a lot of people totally. are saying, I think the world's as bad as it's going to get. Therefore, Jesus is coming back. But the alternative is, no, it's actually getting really bad because God is pruning and God is mm. maybe drawing out a faithful remnant as he has several yeah. times before. Yeah. Yeah. And in many ways, there's a real opportunity. I think there's a real opportunity to reimagine what Christian power is in our culture today. Um, but for whatever reason, we've been hesitant to even talk. That's what worries me is like, why, why aren't we even having the conversation at all? Yeah. Um, I mean, I could count on one hand the books on Christian power that have been written in the last 20 years, and and yet it seems to be one of the most fundamental issues. Yeah. And, and whereas every other issue, there's a million books written on it, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the market's flooded with books on the, on every issue other than this one, it seems. And that's curious. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's, it is something that I think most Christians will acknowledge is an issue. Mm -hmm. but they don't want to talk about it and they don't want to do anything about it. And like yeah, you said, that's what's scary. Totally. About it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, you know, one of the other issues that has come up that really concerns me, and we mentioned this in the book, but the amount of people who are willing to say things like, you know, yeah, my pastor. Yeah. I know he's really arrogant, but man, he's a great preacher. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, no, that's just false. He's a terrible preacher. <laughs> <laughs> he's a jerk on social media, but he's a really good dude if you sit down that's across right. the table from him. It's like, no, like, and that's that's what astonishes me yeah. is that we've just accepted that. Oh, sure, like he bullies people, but man, the guy can preach. Mm -hmm. Man, he knows his Bible. It's like he clearly doesn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that, like, that attitude, this is what's this is what's created this context, I think for worldly and even demonic power to warp the church is when we start making those kind of claims when a church a whole mega church is a bible church stands by watches their elders and their pastor sue a former member hmm. 
for for saying things against them. Wouldn't you rather be wronged? Paul right. tell them. <laughs> Evidently not, right? Yeah. Like for a church to stand by and not revolt. I mean, this is astonishing. Like we are we're seeing churches just watching their leadership sell their souls and do nothing about it. And that that's what I just find so astonishing. And it really makes me wonder like how have we how how do we have these quote unquote Bible churches out there? Have they just never talked about first and second Corinthians? Have right. they just never preached on them? Like what is it? And I for me, I'm honestly baffled by this. But it's it's that culture that has created this 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 notion. Um, and as Dallas Willard pointed out, and I'm sure you feel this as a pastor, like, you know, 200 years ago, a pastor could have been seen as a really good pastor and not be a great preacher mm-hmm. because he was faithful. Whereas now the pastorate is primarily a performative office. Yeah. And so we can say things like he is a great pastor or preacher usually is what we're saying and really be naming how they're totally unfaithful. But because it's a performative thing, what we really mean is, man, that guy's a rhetorician. Yeah, right. And we've cultivated a culture that doesn't know the difference between rhetoric and the proclamation of the word. Yeah, and we, and I think you know, uh, there's got to be a big part of it too that it's the pastors are the ones who are looked at as the authority, as the one who knows the Bible better than everybody else in the room. The one who is who is surely they've already thought through all of this, and I think a lot of people default to what you're saying out of ignorance, out of the fact that they assume. Totally. My, I yeah. guess my elders are right. I mean, I trust them. I'm under their authority. They know the mm-hmm. Bible. I mean, surely they. Maybe this feels a little weird, or maybe this doesn't seem quite like I thought it should. But I mean, he gets it. He's a pastor. He loves the Lord. He preaches the Bible well. So you know, who am I to question him or to judge him? And so I think totally. I think on the lay level, surely a lot of it is just ignorance or lack of discipleship. Uh, especially if you've grown up in a church, if you spent 20 or 25 years in a church where you've basically been trained to think that everything that's happening in that church is okay. And that's, yeah. that's pretty, pretty problematic too. And I think that a lot of that is on us as pastors and leaders mm. to make sure that we are thinking about that and communicating that well to our churches, to where our church knows when we're doing it. Somebody in our church can go, wait a second, mm. that is, you, totally. you have told me that that's not the right thing to do. And so now I'm going to hold you accountable for it because that's what you've taught me that I'm supposed to do. That seems to yeah. be the better route to me. Totally. Well, and that's what encouraged Like I, I've seen, and you told me this, obviously, and you mentioned it earlier, but I, I can't remember who it was, but someone posted something about, I just had my entire staff read the way of the dragon, the way of the lamb. And I remember thinking, man, good for you. Cause that's to, to be a head pastor and to say to your staff, read this book, yeah. like you're putting yourself under a certain kind of, no doubt. Kind of microscope. No there. Doubt. Yeah. There, <laughs> there's a, there's that part of us. I was like, should we, should the staff read this? I mean, you know, like we're doing fine. <laughs> Totally. And I would get it a pastor reading that going, yeah, maybe I won't recommend this. (laughs) (laughs) I get it. And that's, and that has been encouraging to see if pastors who are wanting to say like, we need accountability. We need to actually kind of recognize how tempted we are, all of us, but me particularly as a leader, like how tempted I am towards this. And um, man, I tell you, that's the kind of pastor I want, the kind of pastor that invites people into my temptations to embrace power yeah. and help me. Yeah. When our, uh, when our, when our lead pastor uh, came into our elders meeting and uh, he said, I want to preach less next year because I'm really afraid that I'm building this church on my personality and my preaching mm-hmm. ability. And he's one of those guys that has a very unique preaching gift in that he's, he's the only one like him. There is nobody like 
how he preaches. You know what I mean? Sure. So he has a very he's not unique just mimicking someone. Right. He's he has just, a very yeah, yeah. unique personality. He's the type of guy that could that could preach to a room of three thousand. They'd all love it. Type of guy. And you know, in his in his better moments, he realizes that about himself in a humble way, and basically mm-hmm. said, you know, I'm I'm really afraid that people are going to like the fact that I can tell a story and I can make people laugh and I can exposit scripture and I can have this kind of well-rounded sermon and I'm afraid that people are going to try to try to be here just because of me or just be here because the music's sure. rocking or people they're going to be disappointed whenever the other elders preach because they're different. And yeah. when he walked in and said, hey, I want to preach less next year, I mean, mm. I couldn't have asked for anything better as a fellow elder for a guy to come in and say that unprompted. And say, totally. I, I'm feeling convicted mm-hmm. about this and I need to do it. And that's not to say he's perfect or we're perfect, but man, that is, I'm happy to be in a place where that's the conversation versus yeah. what are we going to do about our lead pastor who's abusing everybody <laughs> and, totally. and, uh, and trying yeah. to go to the conference, go into a conference circuit every week and not mm-hmm. be in here, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. For me. Yeah. It's not about perfection in this regard. It's about actually knowing these issues yep. and, and wrestling through faithfully. How, how do I wrestle through this? Yeah, humility yeah. is actually willing to admit that it's a problem, not totally. acting like you don't have the problem, which are <laughs> right. two yeah. different things. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, Kyle, thanks so much for hopping on, man. I really enjoyed this conversation. I could oh, probably do it for another hour, but that was really good. <laughs> yeah, so good being on here. Thanks, brother. <laughs>